Welcome to the Heavy Metal Strength Coach Podcast. And welcome to another edition of the Heavy Metal Strength Coach podcast. I'm the Heavy Metal Strength Coach, Chris Kershaw. And today I'm joined by Jason Coltman, who is a strength coach with more than 11 years of training experience. He trains athletes and clients of all ages and abilities. He's a British powerlifting coach with a first-class bachelor's degree in sports and exercise science with certificates in the NASM in personal training and sports performance enhancement. What else do we have here? He's competed in football, rugby, strongman, and powerlifting. So he's dabbled a little bit in sport and he's currently Team GB junior head powerlifting coach. Jason, have I missed anything out? Hello, you haven't, you haven't. I'm glad you found my website and was able to read it word for word. (laughs) 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 Uh, I believe- If somebody visits it. My research. Yeah. yeah. So first found you when you were on Coach Cuthbert's podcast. Really, really long while ago, wasn't it? I've seen you coaching in person as well. How are you doing, man? I'm very well, thank you. I'm I'm good. Uh starting the year rested and motivated. So that's good. I love it. And in your career, at what point did you realize that you were a good coach? Oh, I, I don't know. I've never been asked that question before. Um, I guess I kind of started accepting that when I've started to have some success with clients and and lifters but I feel like that question for me would be kind of like I would say I'm a good coach now but I'm always learning and I'm always striving to be um better but I've never stopped and thought to myself right I'm a good coach but looking back on the results I've had with with clients from a just a performance background um a performance standpoint and from working with average personal training clients they get the results that they want so I guess that would be defined as a good coach. Absolutely. Did you always intend to coach through um, competing in the various sports? Did you find yourself drawn to it or was it something you were almost pushed into? Um, no, it was definitely something that I was always gearing towards. I mean, my background, you said it was, was full of sport. I love sport and I think I've been very fortunate to know that I want to do something and make a career out of either playing or coaching sport. So the initial goal for me, the, the highest level of sport that I, I played, um, or the first highest level of sport was rugby. And the goal initially was to be a professional rugby player. That didn't quite work out. Um, I was in an academy and then had the choice between going semi-pro or going to uni. Um, I chose to go to uni and play rugby, so you could do both. Uh, and then from there, I started, like my A-levels were sports science and biology and then I studied sports science at university I worked in a school for a gap year doing PE teaching and like that quickly ruled out after that year that I didn't want to do PE teaching but I went to uni with the goal of coming out and being a strength and conditioning coach to begin with which was that the aim was to go to work at either a rugby club or a football club and, and be a, either a sports scientist or a coach there but after university or during university I kind of stumbled across personal training got open to my eyes got open to that that kind of world coaching people earning fairly decent money while you're doing it so I went down the personal training route as opposed to joining a kind of a club and being a strength and conditioning coach within a club setting but um, yeah in answer to your question it was always going to be something to do with 
sport and coaching. That's a great answer. I love it. And uh, are you still a competitive powerlifter now? Well, I, I'll say yes, but I haven't competed in a very long time. I've um, had a number of injuries and then just coaching has taken over, coaching and work and life. I would say I'm very much more a coach than I am a lifter right now. It's very hard, I found, to do the, to do the two and to think back when I was powerlifting at my highest level. I was a very selfish coach, so to speak, and I suppose I was more more just a trainer than a coach at the, t- at the point where I was competing um, and I just didn't have the time. Well, looking at the time I dedicate to my lifters now, and to my clients now compared to what I was then. Yeah, I think it's the, the roles have reversed. And then I was more of an athlete, um, finding my way in personal training and coaching. And now I'm more of a coach and I will train myself and compete when I get time. You brought up a really interesting point there in that there's definitely a distinction between trainer and coach. In, yeah. Definitely in my mind and definitely in yours as well. I just wondered if you could just unpack a little bit and just explain to anyone listening what the difference is between trainer and a coach i guess when you're when you're a trainer and when i think back to my experience it was just training people in training sessions it's yes i write programs but it it was very in the nicest way possible it's kind of superficial so it was like they want to lose weight or they want to they want to build some muscle but they're not trying to perform there's there's no actual end goal in terms of a sport or a competition in terms of performance and a lot of the work that I did initially was of people that wanted to just get into better shape. It was general fitness, um, if that makes sense. So it's like you could do a 12-week program and you could periodize it and all the rest of it. Or you could just bring them into the gym and give them a logical program, um, or sorry, a logical session that's going to meet and satisfy their goals. So they walk out of the gym happy, feeling like they're fitter, happier, healthier. I think the goals are a bit different. That's for a trainer. And, and you still do little things like help to manage their diet and help with their lifestyle. But I think it's just less specific and less targeted. Whereas coaching, I think any program will, will work to a certain extent. But the big thing with coaching is managing the lifter or the athlete through the program, guiding them, teaching them or showing them how to make the best decisions that are going to lead to the best possible outcome for their end goal. Yeah, that, that's an absolute um, wonderful answer right there. The, the mention of decisions and, and managing the, the individual, I think, is excellent. And I'm sure we'll cover it later um, in the episode. Often um, people say that the lifter makes the coach. And in terms of powerlifting, often uh, someone has like a standout person that, that starts with them for the first time. They go to competition and the and the almost the coach gets the book from there was yeah. the particular client for you that went to competition that got it all started or did powerlifters just gravitate towards you how did you ultimately end up coaching in powerlifting compared to um training let's say the everyday person big driving um force for me was my injury so i was a personal trainer i did i was more rugby focused than i was powerlifting uh, when i started personal training and i would train people that basically well anybody that wanted to get fit um or build muscle and then it then i got a few rugby players on board and a few recreational athletes but then and that's when I was competing uh, and I was coached by Lawrence Francom at the time. And he's the guy that got me into powerlifting in the first place because I met him at the first gym I started personal training. But then I suffered an injury um, and through making very many stupid decisions and just doing far too much. But you live and you learn and, and got, got injured. And 
basically really missed competing again. The reason I got into powerlifting was because I wasn't playing rugby anymore. I just didn't have the time. I did strongman for a little bit, for probably about six months to a year, did two competitions, but that was too far away for me to travel to get to the strongman specific gyms at the time. And I was just kind of pining for some sort of competition because just just gymming for the sake of it wasn't wasn't doing it for me so then Lawrence turned around and said to me why don't you give powerlifting a go and then from that point I was lifting I got to quite a high standard ended up going to the world championships in 2016 as controversial as that that may or may not be and then I suppose some people had gravitating towards me in my gym for powerlifting because I think at times the the industry can still be a little bit fickle when they saw someone who's competed internationally and thought, oh, he's going to be a good coach. But a lot of us know, you and I know that just because you're a great lifter or a good lifter doesn't necessarily make you a good coach. But that was the start of powerlifters coming to me. And then when I had my injury that stopped me from actually training how I wanted to and competing, uh, that's when I really decided to throw myself into powerlifting coaching. And I said to Lawrence, because he was a GB uh, head coach at the time, said anything I can do to get into powerlifting coaching, I want to do it, I want to help. Literally for a year or two, I went to all of the regional competitions. I didn't really have any powerlifting clients as such that competed themselves. And I watched, helped out to handle his lifters for him, whether that was just loading bars, watching him pick numbers, asking questions, X, Y, and Z. And that's how I basically got into powerlifting coaching until it came to the point where him and Pete decided to step down. And he actually suggested that I go for one of the roles, head coach for the juniors or seniors. And that's kind of how it all kind of manifested. Um, and that's how I kind of was to be a powerlifting coach. And in terms of lifters, like it's, it's a funny thing you say, I've, I've spoken about this with a lot of coaches and we talk about the, well, you, you mentioned coaches, that lifters making the coaches. And I think like all of the powerlifting, well, the majority of the powerlifting coaches, they all do good jobs. And I think at the end of the day, we're not in control of what lifter walk through your door. But if you can get an incredibly talented lifter, someone that's insanely strong, if you're a half decent coach and you're able to manage that lifter well, you can almost give them anything. It's, it's more about, I think, managing their fatigue, what they do in their training, making sure the technique's good. And, and they're going to improve to a certain extent, but it's easy to look at a coach and say, oh, he's got an incredibly strong lifter that maybe did well at the British. He must be a great coach, which I think is can be dangerous. But it's that, I think, the test to see which other good coaches are the ones that can get those lifters, but then also keep them on the right track for more than six months and they come in the British, but then what do they do after that? Do they continue to improve? Do they continue to win things? Are you able to manage that athlete to have a successful four, five, six, seven year career in powerlifting, if that's what they want? Yeah, I think, I think for me, I've, I've been thinking about this, like our great athletes, great coaches, and, and not necessarily, and I've designed all kinds of <coughs> Facebook posts and Instagram posts to talk about it, but I've just kind of decided that myself, I, I haven't competed internationally. I've done a couple of Britishes, but I'm just not a good good enough lifter to kind of talk about that on social media because it just looks like I'm bitter because yeah. I'm not yeah. a good enough lifter. So it's yeah. really interesting to come from someone who has competed internationally that you're thinking something very similar to me. So that's really cool. And speaking of Lawrence Farncombe, he's been on the podcast a couple of times and I've interviewed him, I think three times, maybe twice, three times, something like that. So that must have been a really cool experience learning from him firsthand. And one of the questions I asked him was, how far away from a particular competition 
are you starting to manage a lifter? And the example I use is 12 weeks, around 12 weeks before a competition, I'll recommend some of my lifters stop looking on social media or other lifters because it gets in their head. I don't know if you have a similar system or other examples in your own um, services. I, I, I don't, in particular, get them to stop looking at social media because... That's something that I ingrained from the start. So it's kind of embedded in my, I don't know, philosophy, if you like. So my over, overreaching philosophy, I guess, would be one of longevity and creating long-term habits for success. And part of that is making the lifter aware or, or, or any any client for that matter, aware that comparing yourself to somebody else and another lifter is a recipe for disaster for, for a whole number of reasons. So there's, so there's so many lifters that come to me initially or people when they first start out and they talk about, I saw this one doing that or that girl doing that. And it actually happened recently with a client I've been with for, for just over a year, I think. And she used to train with somebody who was really strong. She was like, uh, how are you just so naturally strong? No, no, she was asking her what she did to get so strong because she seemed to train like all the time. And, and, and the girl said, oh, it's just because I work hard. But I said, I said to my client, I said, look, don't be um, fooled. And she's, she's not probably not doing it to try and make you feel bad, but don't always believe the reasons that people attribute their or what people attribute their success to. Because the, the fact of the matter is, it's probably not that she's working necessarily any harder than what my client was, because I know my client, she works incredibly hard, but they yes. have totally different lifestyles. My client has an incredibly stressful job. Um, she'd also just been made redundant due to COVID. And she puts a lot of pressure on herself to, to, to do well and is wondering, why is this person improving so much? And I said, it's not the fact that she's working harder. She could be genetically more gifted. She could be much further along in her training age or training career. But also you have no idea what her lifestyle is like. And that can really affect the rate of progress or your progress at a certain moment in time. And that was actually the case with her because she suddenly got a bit of a rest, started to have more time in her hands. And all of a sudden her lift started to go up again. And she was shocked. And I said, well, look at the change in lifestyle that you've had from four weeks ago compared to now. It's made it's made a massive difference. Um, so so it's, a, it's about ingraining habits. So coming up to a competition, I wouldn't say don't go on social media purely because I would hope by the time one of my lifters gets to competition, they will already know. And I would have already spoken to them on numerous occasions. And we've had, we speak weekly or monthly. So they would have, they would already know not to be comparing themselves to, to others. And I would have kind of nipped that in the bud before they get anywhere close to competition. So, and what we also do is we outline the goals of the competition leading up to it, whether that be, this is your first competition, there are no PBs, anything's going to be a PB because you cannot compare platform lifts to gym lifts. So your aim is to go out there, lift technically very well, execute number one and enjoy it. So they wouldn't be looking at other lifters anyway. But in the case of a lifter where they are kind of, competitive and I've had a few lifters that are competitive that that have looked to other other lifters I mean I can't categorically stop them from going on social media but and, and they can look at, at other lifters I, I did it in the past when I was competing and I think it helps them to build a kind of mental resilience to be able to see what other lifters do and not be influenced by it and if I say sorry go on I know that I was just really interested by the idea of desensitizing social media I think that's a that's a really interesting perspective because we can't wrap all lifters in in cotton wool and social media is such an important part of life and, and they are going to see it uh, that that's a really cool idea I really like that. yeah they're, they're gonna see it they're gonna hear it 
They're going to be tempted. Arguably, they're going to be using more energy and building more anxiety by not knowing what other lifters are going to do. So why not just look? Because I say always at the end of the day, a lifter can lift what they can lift. Nothing you, you're you going to do apart from potentially stupid mind games. And if, like I said, if you don't have that mental resilience, then you might get drawn into that. But nothing that you do on the day in a powerlifting competition is going to affect what anybody else lifts. So, and that's the beauty of powerlifting, right? Like you're, you're strong enough or you're not, or you're sensible enough to pick good attempts to build your total. And at the end of the day, the strongest person may not win if they don't pick the right attempts. But I, I don't, I, I do say to them, if you're going to look at social media, don't let that influence numbers you pick on your training days or anything like that. One thing that I do do though, if they are competitive, is I tell them not to post their lifts, the heaviest lifts on social media, because you can get some fairly good information by researching other lifters and seeing how they train and what they're capable of. And it, it's happened quite a few times where I do it myself as a, as a coach before a competition. If I've got a lifter that I know is competitive and I know that there are other competitive lifters around, I will have a little look on their social media and, and I'll look at the guy and be like, well, you're clearly not squatting to depth. You're grinding the shit out of everything. You've just hit 102% a week before competition. You've just peaked a week early. Little things like that that give you a little bit of information about how the day might go, but that still doesn't influence your plan um, for your lifter. If that makes sense. That yeah, that that was a great answer. Do you take the same approach with lifters? Because we've all got lifters that like to go away and do their own research. That they'll they'll read. I, I don't know, maybe nine squat articles a week trying yeah. to find the answer. And an approach that I've taken before is just to say to lifters, right. In this build-up to the competition, let's just read about other lifts, maybe some overhead press stuff, maybe you read about nutrition, something like that. Um, do you take a similar approach or is it more about desensitization? It's about desensitization again. I mean, you've got lift certain lifters, they're going to have certain personalities and it's not, you, you can't change someone's personality. So I think it's about trying to figure out who your lifter is, how they are, and help to facilitate who they are and, and what they do so if you know that you have a lifter that is going to research stuff try and figure out ways that you can help them to be better at doing that without it influencing them negatively rather than trying to kind of trying to fit everybody into the same size kind of hole and say you must not do this and you must not do that case in point this guy's not my lifter but someone that I handled at the the worlds and the euros this guy is meticulous with numbers he researches thoroughly all of his competition. He came in and told me this guy's going to total that. And I, I think he was maybe about two and a half kilos off of what the guy actually totaled. He writes notes on his phone after every lift about each lift. And, and to me, I would say that's not a great idea, but this guy's European champion and he, he smashed a load of records and that's just what he does. So although to me, that doesn't seem like a great idea, I, I think it's more, well, I would imagine it's better to focus on the lifts when you're coming off between lifts at a major or any competition. That's just what this guy likes to do. So it, it's about figuring out the tendencies of, I think, the, the lifter or the athlete. And if it is, if their tendencies are detrimental, what can you change or how can you slightly alter what they want to do to not have it negatively impact them. It may not have a positive influence, but as long as it isn't taking anything away, then it doesn't really matter. It gives them the peace of mind. Okay. I think those two answers of the last two questions are going to make me a better coach. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much for those. Do you adjust the way that you give feedback to your lifters as competition day approaches? 
uh, an example with me might be I might use more positive language as I get towards competition day. There might be less technical cues. I'm not sure, but I wondered what your approach is. Yeah, um, yes, I think on competition day, I'm always positive, uh, even if there's something negative to be said or some constructive criticism to be given, apart from like sometimes potentially if I think something or a certain cue is going to help a lifter to get a lift when they need it, if they're doing something that they're not, that they can do to help them. Uh, one big example is people being tight in their upper back. A lot of the time, well, not a lot of time, but there have been cases where I see people are a little bit rounded in their back as they go to as they perform a squat and that really slows down their lift. And I, I, I can see that if they were just a little bit tighter in their upper back, for an example, um, I'll say, look, just make sure you're putting your shoulders down. You're really tight in your upper back because you're strong enough to get this lift. But if you make sure you don't lose position, then that's going to be the difference between you getting it or missing it. Um, something very simple like that. Um, I wouldn't say it in such a long winded way would be kind of the only feedback I would give a lifter. Otherwise, I'm very positive. They'll come off and they'll ask you how that lift was or was it good? And it's more just about reassuring them that they know what they're doing. They, they've been there in their training. They're just there to execute. And a lot of the time, they're just asking for reassurance. They ask how it is. Is it good? How was it? And you say, yeah, it was great. It's brilliant. Exactly what you needed to do. Do the same next time kind of thing. And the same in the prep, in the lead up to it. Uh, you certainly don't want to be making any big technical changes in, in the lead up. So it's more about them just executing and again, managing how they kind of navigate that peaking block. And that's where I would say the most changes are, are most likely in terms of you set the program out, but you might put, I don't know whether it's a percentage or whether it's a, an RPE, I put three sets of to uh, I don't know, 90%, for example, it's really tough that week. And you'll be like, maybe next week, back it off you'll say if you get to if you get to 87 percent, 85 percent, and it's feeling really tough leave it there or you might say if you do one single or, or one double at 90 percent, and it feels really tough then you'll just leave it there that is the peaking kind of phase four weeks leading up to competition is more about managing how they perform that that program as opposed to managing how they're performing the lifts yeah i love that and I, I love your emphasis on um decision making as well something that i often say to my lifters that are approaching their first competition is that uh, when, when they're going towards it many first timers will make some decisions that they would never make unless there was um, a lot of stress on them and um, i just wonder how you help your lifters to make better decisions going forward in their training decisions in in terms of like load selection or yeah let, let's go let's go load selection to begin with yeah um so yeah in terms of in terms of that like we speak about the the peaking block and emphasize what the actual goals of the block are but also it depends, I guess, on the actual program, the way I set it out, whether I use percentages or RPs or, or both. But it's it's the stress that obviously the hard work has basically been been done. And this phase is about realizing your potential and priming and readying your neuromuscular system to lift maximally. So it's not to stress. Like, And a lot of the time I will say expect to feel beat up because we all know when you're peaking for a competition that last week or even the last two or three weeks you feel like dog shit a lot of the time and things start not to uh, to move as well and it's just about reassuring them that you've done hard work you're not suddenly going to get weaker in the space of a couple of weeks however don't force things and it, this is kind of the, the exactly the conversation I have with them 
is that if you write, because a lot some of my lifters write in the numbers, if I write a percentage, they'll write the number. And I try and encourage them not to do that or not or know that that's only a guide. Because if I write 90% and they write oh, 250 kilos, then they'll go in thinking I must hit 250. But if they hit 240 as a last warm-up, 235 as a last warm-up, and it moves terribly, 250 isn't there on that day. But I know there are certain lifters, some of mine, where if they're targeting a certain number in competition, they want to try and they have a number that they feel like they have to hit in the prep in order to get there. And that's not necessarily the, the case. So it's just having the chat with them before they start the peaking block. And then we're always kind of in contact throughout. But if certain numbers aren't there on certain days, don't freak out. Don't worry. Keep everything like technically sound and just take what's there. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's a little bit less. And if, it, if it's a new lifter that hasn't competed before, it doesn't matter too much. But if it's a lifter that's competed a few times before, I'll often also reference previous peaks and what's happened there. So it might be the case that, look, you're freaking out because 130 is feeling really hard. However, the heaviest load that you hit last block was 120, and then you went and lifted 135 at competition so if we use last block as a comparison you've just hit 130 that would indicate that you're capable of 145 on the day and then they're like oh yeah you're right that that's kind of that makes sense kind of thing so it's just trying to make sure they're aware of the goals where what they're trying to achieve with that peak and also using past experience to help to kind of put them at ease because when they think about last things they're like right this happened before i've been here I know what happens. I'm in this scary zone, but it will all be all right on the day. So it's all about building layers of information about a client so that when poor decisions happen, you can refer to lots of data in the past to reassure them yeah. that it's okay or what you're going to do about it, which brings me on to um, another question. How many competitions do you feel you need with a lifter before you're handling them optimally on competition day if ever i don't know maybe i suppose because i handle a lot of people that i haven't worked with before i guess i would i would say two i mean and i say this because there have been occasions where i've worked with somebody internationally it's not gone terribly but there are things that i didn't know about that lifter that i've learned fairly quickly and rectified in the the, the second time round. Um, so I, I would say I would say two to three. So, for example, there was a guy that competed at the Worlds. He, he did very, very well, but all of his third attempts looked better than his than his seconds. And it's it's the way that he lifts. And, and one of the, the biggest kind of rules in competition is, is that you have to make your second look good. Um, so that we know kind of have accurate kind of assessment of where we're going to go for the third. If they if they mess up their their second attempt on any of the lifts, maybe um, with the deadlift is the exception because you're you're pulling for places and stuff like that. But if you mess up the second lift, then it doesn't give the coach much information to to go with the with their planned third attempt, um, unless you want to be really ballsy and and that could that could be successful or it could be really stupid. You don't know. But with this guy, all of his thirds look better. Um, and we kind of we spoke afterwards. And then the second time I handed him at international, I, I went in with, with an idea that a lot of his lifts move fairly slowly. So his squat, for example, 
moves really slow, but it's consistent. And obviously that's not something that I would have known the first time around. So if I'd have seen his his second lift that I saw in the second time I was working with him, I put more on the bar more than I would have if it was the first time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so but I trusted him because I'd seen it before and I was like, I, I know that your second attempt moves slow. But I also said to him, look, we don't want a repeat of last time. Make sure that you're switched on for all of your seconds so that I can put the number that you want onto your third. And to, to be fair, I gave him the benefit of doubt in, in this competition, second time round. And although the number I was thinking, I would actually probably go two and a half less. I did it anyway, because I thought we've spoken about it. He's happy with it. He knows what he wants. I'll give you the opportunity to go out and, and basically hit the number you're telling me that you can hit. Um, and, and he did it sure enough. So it, it, it kind of works. Uh, so that's the reason I say you can, you can definitely learn how the tendencies of a lifter and um, maybe what the better decisions to be made with a lifter are after one competition. But I guess if you want to be on the safer side and if there's more to learn about that lifter, then I think certainly after two times working with somebody, um, you should have a, a fairly good idea of what they like, how they how they are, what they respond to. Yeah, I think I tend to learn the most about a lifter after that first competition debrief. Yeah. And um, going through that for <clears throat> 60 minutes, just going through how they felt about how I communicated with them, how they felt it went on the day, and how they felt I managed them. I don't know if you've noticed a similar thing. So is that with, with them feeding back to you how, how you were? Yeah, or sitting down with them individually or however you want to do those kind of debriefs. I guess I, I guess a little bit sitting sitting down with them afterwards. But yeah, not not so not so much for me. It's more it, it's more drawing. But then I think what I get from them afterwards is where they're mentally at as a as a lifter and how they define their success. Because sometimes you'll get people who maybe don't have a great meet and are okay with it. And they're like, well, it's it's the first meet, or they'll be like, it's uh it might be their third or fourth meet, whatever it might be, but they take the not so good performance very well. And, and they're still positive and they come away motivated with things that they feel like they want to work on. But the next time on the flip side, you might get somebody that actually did pretty well. They might've got eight out of nine and they've got a 15 kilo PB, but they're still upset because they didn't get the 20 PB that they want, 20 kilo PB that they wanted. So that their, their kind of response to their performance tells me more about, about them um, as a and the things that I maybe need to work on to help build their confidence and character. And I guess, um, perception about competition lifting yeah um, but yeah I, I don't I wouldn't say that I've not that I've recognized anywhere that I've got too much from them about how I've worked with them after the competition that's really interesting I, I love asking coaches stuff like that to see where they learn the most lessons from because it allows me to to focus on different areas so next time I'm at competition I'll probably make more notes while we're there now this next question is based on your athletes not people that you've taken on that have another coach because I, I know that that's a very very different um, yeah. approach so in my head when I'm taking the lifter to competition I want them to be definitely getting seven eight or nine for nine otherwise I feel like I haven't done an adequate job as a coach whether that's right or not I'm not sure but that's how I feel I don't know if you have something similar in mind almost like a minimum standard what you want your lifter to achieve the goal is always to get the most amount of lifts um, and hindsight is a wonderful thing I had a co- I had a conversation with a coach um, one of the other GB coaches earlier this week, actually. And, and he, he said to him, the competition doesn't start until 
the last deadlift. And it's just about getting those eight lifts on the board. And, and to an extent, I agree with him. Yeah. Uh, the goal is always to get nine lifts out of nine. That, that, that's going to give you the best chance of winning a competition. There are scenarios where you take bigger risks and the goal maybe isn't to get... Um, well, the goal is always to get nine for nine, but there's there's scenarios where you accept uh, an element of risk in terms of missing out on that nine for nine. But I think the goal should always be to get the most amount of lifts because that's going to give you the biggest the biggest total and set you up for for doing doing the best. In terms of being hard on yourself, um, I, I think all coaches are, and I'm I'm my biggest critic, and I'm always kind of hard on myself when lifters don't get all of their lifts. That being said, you can't you're not the one lifting. It's 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 like there's this thing where if the lifters do well, it's all on the lifter. If the lifters do bad, then it's the kind of the coach's fault. But at the same time, the, the lifter has to go out there and, and execute. So you still can put the right number on the bar. You could you saw you could have seen everything to suggest that that lifter would get that lift. And they might just go out for whatever reason, switch off for a second, misgroove it, and they miss the lift. You've got no no bearing on on that. So um, I think it's it, it's a difficult one because when you're handling lifters, we all want to do want them to do the best, and we all get emotionally invested. I get so much more nervous coaching anybody else, whether it's a, a flipping a regional or an international. But but yeah, the, the goal is always to get them all of their lifts and make sure they're very happy. But it doesn't always go that way. And sometimes there's not anything you can really do about it. You, you did a great job there of talking about what the coaches can't control. I'm just wondering on any common mistakes you see handlers making that they can avoid, that they can do better, and that, that maybe the mistakes you made in the past are mistakes you yeah. avoided for listening to Lawrence and something like that. I don't know if you have a few words about mistakes that handlers will often make. Opening too heavy, probably one of the most, the most common ones. Trying to, I, I wouldn't say this is as common anymore, I think this is more of a kind of novice mistake, but trying to hit your PB or the number that you want on your second attempt with the mindset that if you miss it, you get a second go. That, is, that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And I have had conversations where pe people used to have that approach. But yeah, the, the, the biggest one is, is just making sure that you don't open too heavy. Obviously, have, having in mind where you want to go and set your first and second attempt up in order to, to give you the opportunity to hit that or attempt that third that third attempt if it if it's there and I think having other options as well so a lot of the time people will just have two numbers they'll have their first and their second attempt and then they'll base their third on what their second is some people have the approach where they only have their first attempt and then they literally decide from there but sometimes it could be a good idea to have a kind of a, a number that you're you're opening with then you might have one or two numbers kind of a low and a high for your second and then a low and high for your third. And I have seen some coaches even have three numbers for each yeah. one. Yeah. And I'll have like a predicted, a reach, and then if they're having a really bad day, they'll, they'll drop it off. But you can almost do that by, by eye, and especially if it's your own lifter. You have your three numbers. I don't know, my guy's going to open at 200 kilos in the warm-up room. He hits 185 and it moves much slower than we'd want it to. So we drop in five kilos and we just go from there. The other one I was going to say is relying too much on your training for, for the numbers. So obviously we know that strength is variable. Um, there are a number of things that can affect your strength on the day. And you could have had the best warm up or the best lead up, but just so happens that you've got a terrible night's sleep, nerves get the better of you, whatever it might be. You have to be prepared to adapt the plan on the day. So many times I'll see 
people's performances and they'll go six for nine purely because they were unwilling to modify the plan. You've done the training, you know what numbers you want to hit and your training might predict that, but the nerves, the, the different scenarios, like if it's international or a national competition, the, the just the kind of importance and significance of the event is much different than you at your home gym around all your friends and your coach. So you have to be willing to accept that there are external factors that might affect your performance as well as just how your training have gone and how you physically feel. So yeah, that would be people that are, are not willing to change the plan and they have their numbers and you'll look at their first and think, well, that's a bit hard, but they'll still go to their plan second. And then sure enough, you miss your thirds because you just went too heavy. Um, and then I think that has a knock-on effect in the confidence of the lifter and the confidence for your next competition as well. So that's a mistake, but then you've also got to think about the implications of that mistake and how it's going to make the lifter feel, how it's going to make you feel as a coach, how it's going to affect the next training block, because they're going to go into training thinking, I got six for nine on my last competition everything went terribly wrong and they're just not in a good state. Whereas you could have looked at what's happening on, on the actual day, lower the opener, lower some of your attempts. And that lifter would then come away thinking, oh, well, I've got eight for nine or nine for nine. Um, it wasn't what I wanted, but I think you'll, you'll be in a much more positive mind state after that competition, having walked away, getting all of your lifts and taking what's there on the day, as opposed to, going for the plan anyway, missing lifts. And I mean, no one likes to list, miss lifts on the platform. It just doesn't feel good, right? So yeah, the, the biggest the biggest two I would say is um, just going too heavy on your openers and your second attempts. Don't be afraid to take that 10 kilo jump from your second to your third, because it's going to give you a better chance of getting that third, as opposed to going five kilos before your third with the mindset of, oh, I can, if I miss my third, that's the thing people will think, if I miss my third, I'll only miss, I'll only lose five kilos, but you're not setting yourself up efficiently or the, the best way possible to get that third in the first place. So you've almost lost that five kilos before you've even attempted. Um, and then it would be, don't be afraid to change the plan if necessary on the day. Um, again, like great answers. Um, something that I'll tell my lifters on competition day is, well, normally well before to prepare them in advance but let's just go with that for now so on competition day i would say that my job is to be the stress shield so if the running order completely changes and um, yeah. if something's going on if there's explosions outside um, they won't even see me reacting to it i'll like even to the point where like um, if there's a big rush in the warm-up room, I make sure that I just will walk out. And then there's been literally times where I walked out of the warm-up room and then sprinted out of the door so yeah. that they can't see me panicking or see me dealing with something that's going wrong. I just wondered if you have any similar stories um, about that and just say a few words about how important body language is and managing the stress of the lifter on competition day before we wrap this up. Um, I've not got many experiences of me stressing out, I would say, in front of a lifter. Not that I can think of. I'm, I'm sure there'll probably be many lifters that will tell you otherwise. But body language, like, yeah, body language, the way that you are around a lifter is, is very important. And I think also just taking the time to understand your lifter's personality and, and what they like during the competition is massively important as well. So... Uh, you want them to be comfortable. Jason, I'm so sorry. The yeah. um, internet connection bottomed out as soon as you started answering that question. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> so 
I'll leave the floor to you again on that question about body language and um, then, yeah, I'll start to, to wrap up from there. Cool. Um, yeah, so in terms of experiences, there's nothing that kind of springs out to mind in terms of things that, that I've done that is kind of maybe uh, in terms of being flustered or had to panic. I've, there's certainly been loads of moments during competitions where where things have happened. Like, for example, I don't know, the lifter is or thinks that they're in flight B suddenly finds out they're in flight A. And then, I mean, you can't, you can't panic, but you have to say, look, you haven't got a lot of time. We're going to cut your warm ups to like three and we're going to get going kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and it's in those situations, it is very important that you contain yourself and whatever you're feeling, you don't let any kind of anxious, nervous energy come out towards the lifter as much as you as, as you can because it, it will affect them and in terms of body language and just the way that you act I think it's very good to try and take note of the lifter's personality so um, obviously you, you know your lifter but you'll know what they like you know what they don't like some lifters like aggression some lifters want you to shout in the face some lifters want to back slap some lifters just want to be calm some lifters won't talk to you for the whole day uh, it's important to get to know and understand what those are what they like what they don't like so that you know how to act around your your lifters to to help them the best way. Like the whole thing in terms of competition day and game day handling is you're trying to facilitate the best result you can for the lifter. So it makes sense that you're trying to find out everything that you possibly can to make the day run smoothly for them. And that's basically it. That 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 sentence right there. Yeah, that that's. I, I wish I could just press stop right there, <laughs> put that onto a nice social media graphic. That's wonderful. So, what I'd like to do now, is if you want to give any shout outs to anyone, or if there's any mentors you want to shout out, feel free to do so. And then after that, just feel free to provide any social media information, website information. Just tell us a little bit more. Uh, about where to find out all the information that you provide, the services that you provide, because it's really good stuff and people need to hear it. Cool. Uh, well, I guess shout outs firstly to, to my coach, well, my now coach again, because I started up with him a few days ago, um, Lawrence. He got me into powerlifting. I <laughs> yeah, learned a hell of a lot from him just in terms of powerlifting, powerlifting coaching, game day handling. Um, and then also, I mean, kind of the, the big dogs of, of British powerlifting who I always look up to and, Every competition internationally that I work at, I'm always asking them questions and asking them what they would do just to get their point of view and learn from them would be Martin Bass, um, Aaron Singh and Dean Barron. Um, I've worked with, with all of those coaching and obviously they're legends of British powerlifting and um, all four of those and Pete Sparks as well. And he still comes out to international competitions with me now. I've learned a hell of a lot of them and I will continue to learn a lot from them over the uh, the course of the years that I'm, that I'm coaching. And in terms of where you can find me, social media, Jason Courtman, just my name on Instagram and Facebook. And I have a website, jasoncourtman.com as well. All right. That was um, a wonderful episode. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for coming on, Jason. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Heavy Metal Strength Coach Podcast.